Our text this afternoon is found in Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tra tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, so last week we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and how he walked on water, and we see that Christ is sufficient for all ministry. Without him, it is impossible. With him, the impossible is possible. And 
the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the disciples, as they looked inwardly, they were tempted perhaps to despair, which is something we could all potentially do when we think about sheep without a shepherd, the call to doing ministry is really an impossible task, and we should not rely on ourselves. So we put no confidence in the flesh, but we put confidence in the sufficiency of Christ who supplies bread, who supplies and multiplies our efforts, and we can trust in that. So we don't look to what we do have or what we don't have. We don't boast in what we do have. We don't despair of what we don't have. We trust in Christ who blesses, who multiplies our efforts and multiplies our skills and our abilities, our resources, everything for his glory. With Christ, we can accomplish his, um, his uh, uh, will for our lives. So that's where we've come from. And today we're going to see how Jesus kind of squares off with the Pharisees again and his authority as Mark is concerned with, revealing the authority of Christ we see how Christ is authoritative. So let's pray, and we will get into this text. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I pray that as we open it up, as we read it, as we study it, you would give light to our eyes, and you would encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. So I'm going to list off some of the deeds that Christ has done. We're going to play a little game to start off. I'm going to list off some of the deeds that Christ has done, and I want you to tell me which one of these don't fit in the category, or at least doesn't seem to fit in the category. So here we go. Jesus casts demons out of a man. Jesus calms a storm by talking to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Jesus heals a leper and cleanses him. And Jesus raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead, And last, Jesus declares all foods clean. Now, if you're thinking along the lines that I am, if you're thinking about this the way that I am, you probably would have said, gee, the one that doesn't seem to fit in that category is Jesus declaring all foods clean. Is that on par with talking to the wind and the waves? We certainly see his authority in that. We see his authority when he raises someone from the dead, but I declare all foods clean. That doesn't seem to be in the same category. Maybe, maybe you would agree with me. Um, I'm going to make the case here, and my goal today is to show you how his declaration, all foods are clean, and what he's saying here in this passage demonstrates the authority of Christ in a particular way. And as Mark continues to reveal Jesus as the one who has authority over all things, we see him yet again, as I just mentioned, squaring off with the Pharisees in the ring for another round with them. And we see how Christianity also approaches everything utterly different than any other system of thought or any other religion. It is utterly unique in the way that it diagnoses and the way that it prescribes. So Christianity is utterly unique in its approach to every matter. And I want to look at this passage with you tonight, these 23 verses, through the lens of, let's see here, three categories. We'll look at the, uh, the confrontation, we'll look at the condemnation, and then the clarification. So I want to look at this passage, these 23 verses, through the lens of those three categories, the confrontation, 
the condemnation, and the clarification. So let's start with the confrontation. The law, known as the Torah, did in fact hold out standards of cleanliness, pretty high standards, in fact, for the Israelites, for the priests, and they were to be taken very seriously because God was holy, God was clean, and there was a call upon the people to be holy, as I am holy. And the Israelites, who were the people of God, and the, the priests that were assigned to make sacrifices on their behalves, they did, they did take this very seriously. So they concerned themselves greatly with the laws about cleanliness, because really it had to do with holiness. That was the bigger thing about it. Now the Pharisees were religious leaders in Jesus' day, and they had power and influence over the very people that Jesus would have been ministering to. So they kind of have a shared audience, so by nature, you can see why they wind up butting heads quite a bit. Now, one of the things the Pharisees did over the years was to start making laws of their own. They started adding to the laws that were there in the Old Testament Torah. The Torah was the law of God for the people of God, the Israelites. So they started kind of making it, uh, you know, they started adding to it, curtailing it perhaps after their own desires, curtailing it and adding to these laws. And they were able to write these modifications into law and treat them as if they were from God himself. Now, by the way, this is a good pattern for perhaps abuse and tyranny, right? Make your own religion, write it into law, and then punish anybody who doesn't abide by it. This is greasing the skids, I could say. This is kind of a side mark for abuse, for tyranny. Make your own religion, make laws about it and then abuse or to punish those who don't keep it. Now, I'm reluctant to say that the Pharisees did anything right here, but we should maybe give them the benefit of the doubt. They did care about a few things here that we can appreciate. They had some motivations for why they would do this, for why they would add these laws. Here's three of them. First of all, in their minds, in the Pharisees' minds, it made the requirement of Israel to be holy, as I am holy, holy unto the Lord, something that was attainable for every Jew. They wanted this to be attainable. And isn't this the temptation? Kind of to just, you know, here's how we will know if we attain to this holiness. So they didn't think that they were avoiding the command of God. They just were thinking that they were making it attainable. So that was one of the motivations that they had for adding to the Old Testament Torah, to making their laws, to making their traditions, as Jesus said. A second reason is that their modifications or their additions acted as a wall that separated the pagans from the people of God. It helped to, the devout to make a conscious efforts to separate themselves from those who did not worship God. And then third, it was an outward sign of obedience in Jesus' day. They had their out, outward signs. Perhaps you know, we're familiar with this idea of virtue signaling. Maybe this was the New Testament time, the Pharisaical way of virtue signaling. They had their different ways of identifying themselves with the people of God or showing we are in. They had things like circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, observing food laws, and washing hands. These were very big outward visible signs that showed we are in. We are the people of God. So the Pharisees did have these motivations for wanting to add to the laws to make it more attainable, to simplify it for their people. And perhaps, perhaps they did start with some good intentions. 
they were definitely over the top. In fact, we read some of the rabbis in their time likened eating bread with unwashed hands to intercourse with a prostitute. Can you put those two things on the same level? And that's how seriously some of these things had become. And some were banned and kicked off of Twitter for casting doubt even on the tradition of the elders. They lost their Twitter accounts back in the day. They were being canceled if they even questioned the elders' authority on their traditions in the modified laws. So it was very serious. And when Jesus confronts the Pharisees about their tradition here, there is indeed a real showdown going down about who really has authority over the word of God. And I want you guys to see that. There is a battle over who has authority about God's word and what it really says. What does God's word really teach and what does it really say? Jesus says his interpretation is the final say and the Pharisees say that theirs is. Who is right? And this is the confrontation, you see. This is the confrontation that is going down. Now let's look at the condemnation. We can look at this passage through the lens of confrontation. We can look at it through the lens of condemnation. And I want to make the point that the, Phil- that the Pharisees, not the Philistines, the Pharisees, um, they are guilty of more than a misstep here. All right, so maybe they did start off with good intentions, giving them the benefit of the doubt. But somewhere along the way, their own laws have become so important to them, so central to them, so much a priority over even the word of God, that this is more than a misstep. We shouldn't conclude, oh, those, Philly, those silly Pharisees, they're just so excited about God, they just got a little bit carried away. I don't think that's the way that we should take that. Rather, I think Mark warns us that they are rejecting God and that they are under the judgment of God for ignoring his word. And I think that's what Jesus is teaching here. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's actually helping us to see that the Pharisees are currently under his judgment, under his condemnation. So it's very serious. Mark tells us that there is a grave warning here. There is a grave warning for those who drift away from God's word into self-governance. And we can relate to this. We can, we can, we can take this to heart. That there is a grave warning for those who will drift away from God's word and suddenly kind of drift into self-governance. And that's what laws and traditions that are man-made essentially does. They start to take the place of God and his word. And now you're starting to self-govern. You're starting to appease the desires of your flesh. And you're starting to live not for God, but yourself. And what Jesus is teaching here is that you Pharisees have done that. And you are under the condemnation of God. You are not in a good place. You are not following God. You are rejecting God. And here's how I see that happening. The issue is that their traditions are not only prioritized over the word of God, but that actually by prioritizing their traditions and by them following their traditions, they are negating, they are voiding, they are actually contradicting, they are, they are rebelling against the word of God. And here's how we see that. Verse 9 Read this with me, if you will. You have a fine way, Jesus says, of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, 
then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So here's this command, honor your father and your mother, and what Jesus is essentially saying is, because of your tradition, you can't do that. You're actually rebelling against the word of God here. And let me break this down a little bit more for us so we can understand. And as I think about it, <laughs> I'm trying to maybe uh, say this as simply as possible without getting too much into it. So I, I, don't, I hope I can add clarification here a little bit to you. But Corbin refers to a gift that is given, which profits can only be accessed by the individual or the charity that it is given to. So they had their temple sacrifice, they went to the altar, they offered their gifts, and in the tradition there was, this, uh, there was this gift that was Corbin, which means if I offered my temple sacrifice, it could only go to the temple. Maybe the way that I can think about this is if, uh, let's say there's a mission trip that a church is having, and there's somebody who asks for uh, support on their mission trip, and you write out a check to the mission trip, um, and you say, and you write their name in the memo on the check. Now that money can only go to that person. It can't be distributed freely amongst the team. It can only be given and distributed to that individual person. So in that way, it's kind of like this. A Corbin gift is something that can only be, um, for whatever reason, the profits can only be taken for the individual, for themselves, or it can only go to the temple, and that's it. So if the parents of that individual had a need, well, sorry, mom and dad, my gift can only go to the temple. Or I could take it for myself, but it really could only go to the temple. So you're out of luck. And what Jesus is saying, in order to keep this tradition alive, uh, they have to break the commandment to honor their father and their mother. And in Jewish culture, according to the Old Testament, according to the Torah, uh, taking care of your parents was one of the key ways that you worship God and you follow God and you surrender to God. So this is what Jesus is saying. Now I want to take this a step further here, and I really need you guys to put your thinking caps on here. I'm trying to do this as simply as I possibly can. You guys will have to follow me here. But let me walk you through this. Another reason why I see this, this idea of condemnation coming up. Let me make a connection between Mark 4 and 7 and how that parallels a connection that's in Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 29. So Mark borrows from Isaiah. He goes back to the book of Isaiah. And in Mark chapter 4, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 7, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. So there's a connection between Mark 4 and 7 and in that paralleling, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 29. Here's what's going on. He says this in Mark 4, 10 and 11. He's saying to the disciples, this is where he's introducing the idea of the parables. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that, this is where he quotes Isaiah 6, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And what this is saying is Jesus, is Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples at this point, I don't know if you guys remember me saying this, but unless the Pharisees or unless anybody would humble themselves to God's word, 
that they would be, the reason why Jesus speaks in parables is that they would be hidden unless they humbled themselves to God's word to discover what the meaning of the parables really were. Unless they surrendered themselves to Jesus himself as the author of the word of God, as the giver of the meaning, that the parables would kind of keep the meaning of, of, that, of, of it hidden. So there's a warning. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, under the parables. Come to me and you will have sight. You will have understanding. And if you don't, you will not have sight. You will go blind. You will go spiritually blind. And that was the point of the parables in Mark chapter 4, which he quotes Isaiah 6 in. Now, let's look at Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Look at our text that we're looking at today. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now we're back in Isaiah. Do you see this? And guess which passage he is quoting from? Isaiah 29. You hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Now that is Isaiah 29, 13. And if you keep reading in Isaiah, this is interesting now, look at what he says in the very next verse in Isaiah 29, 14. It says, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So what is going on here? Let me put it all together for us. Here's what's going on. Isaiah issues a warning in chapter 6 saying, um, you will hear, but you will not understand. If you don't surrender to God and his ways, you will go blind. Warning. You will go blind if you do not surrender yourself to God. And then by the time Isaiah 29 comes around, he is saying, you have gone blind. You have rejected God and you are now spiritually blind. And you know what I'm going to do with you? Your wisdom of your wise men as much as you think you're wise and as much as you think you're committed to God, I will cut that wisdom off. It will perish. It will come to nothing. And the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. You will be blind. You are blind spiritually because you have severed ties with the living God. Now, you see that connection. Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 29. Warning of blindness, then blindness. And then in, in Mark we see Mark 4, there's a warning, warning of blindness. Surrender yourself to Christ or you will not see the message of the parables. Now we get to Mark chapter 7. What does Jesus say? You have gone blind. You are now blind. And how do we see that you are blind? You honor your traditions and you negate the word of God. You are blind, and you are not in a good spot. You are under the condemnation of the living God. That is the warning here, and we should take that to heart. It's very severe. It is very heavy. And what he is telling us is that the Pharisees have rejected God's word. They have become blind gods. They are not making an honest mistake here. They are rebelling against God and they are nullifying the word of God. And this nullification of the word of God is proof that they are blind. And their blindness is proof that they are under the condemnation of the living God currently. So beware, and we can say this for ourselves, beware 
brothers and sisters, beware of drifting away from the word of God. Beware of subtracting from it in the case of Isaiah or beware of adding to it in the case of the Pharisees in the New Testament. Christians, and we can say a little bit more about this, there's many ways that we might drift away from the word of God and embrace different ideas. Maybe it's even methodologies or anything that would take us away from the sufficiency of knowing God's word that our trust would be holy and always in the word of God, that it is sufficient for us, that it does speak to all things in a, an authoritative way. So that is the condemnation. We have the confrontation. We have the condemnation. Now we have the clarification. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Now, what clarification does Jesus offer here? He interprets the law of God. He offers clarification on what the word of God really teaches. And this is how he stands in authority over the Pharisees. And we see that actually, <laughs> this is just as much authoritative as talking to the wind and the waves and as raising a dead person to life. Jesus has authority to determine what the word of God really does mean and how it should apply to our hearts and then into our lives. And I hope we can see that as maybe the pinnacle of his authority, that he can speak to interpret what the word of God really does say. What was the, Lord, what was the Old Testament really all about? Jesus speaks authoritatively. Here, let me tell you what this passage really means. I will have the final say on this, Jesus says. And Jesus demonstrates authority when he says, actually, all foods are clean, but your hearts are not. And that's what he says. All foods are clean, but your hearts are not. And every heart of every man and every woman on the planet is not clean. In fact, that is the problem that the human race faces, is that they have an unclean heart, and that the defilement that you seek to cleanse from the outside in, that's not the solution. And the problem, you have the wrong diagnosis. The problem actually is so much deeper than you could ever give it credit for. It comes from within. That's what he's saying. So on par with driving out demons, raising the dead, and calming the storm, Jesus demonstrates authority just the same when he says, food laws are, or I'm sorry, food, all foods are clean, but our hearts are not. And Jesus teaches us that everyone has sinned against him and that evil comes from the depths from within us, not from without he tells us that it is impossible, actually, to cleanse ourselves from eating the right foods or washing our hands. There's no food that you can eat that can actually cleanse and solve the problem. There's no amount that you could wash your hands. Although, you know, as I think about our COVID world, the, the Jews and all of their laws, they would have done really good through this pandemic, wouldn't they? With all the, uh, the laws of washing hands and such. But nonetheless, there is no way that they could possibly cleanse the depths of where the evil really comes from and where the diagnosis and where the solution needs to be applied. Now, let me ask you this. What is the most important piece of maintenance on your car that you perform? What is that? Now, if you say changing the windshield washer fluid, you need help, okay? I heard Julie Springfield over there. She was saying oil. 
right? Were you mouthing oil? That is right. Julie gets a star next to her name. Good job. Changing the oil in your engine. I would suggest to you, I'm no mechanic, but I've watched a couple of YouTube videos, and I can tell you, changing the oil on your car is probably the single most piece of maintenance that you can do. Because if you don't know this, um, if you don't change the oil on your car, eventually your pistons in your engine block will run out of lubrication and it will be metal rubbing on metal and those things will essentially solidify in place if it gets to a place that's too far gone. And your engine will be totally broken, totally shot. And that's the reality. And there is no hope for recovering it. And if you decide, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go buy the best synthetic oil that I could possibly, and I'll add some additives in there, and I'll put it in there every single day, and that will fix the engine. It will not. Because your engine is irreparable at that point. It is beyond what you can do. There is no amount of good that you can do now to recover that engine, to bring it back to life, to nurse it back to life. And that is what Jesus says about our hearts, brothers and sisters. He says that our true problem is at the core of our being, that we have sinned and that eating foods that are clean or unclean, it will never fix the problem. It will never get to the core of what our issue actually is. But Jesus demonstrates authority in us and over us by saying, I know what your problem is. It is in you. And I know what your solution is. It is in me. There is no way, the only hope uh, that this engine might be restored is that if a mechanic, a master mechanic, takes it apart, totally takes it, all the pieces apart, fixes them, and puts it back together, that's the only way, that's the only hope. And same is true with our hearts. The only way is if the living God, the creator of the universe, goes in and gives us a heart of flesh in place of our heart of stone, who goes in and gives us a new heart, because that is the only solution that can possibly fix our issues. And just like a car is driven by an engine, uh, our human being, our person, is driven by our hearts. When Jesus addresses our hearts, he teaches us, that is the engine of you. Everything that you do and everything that you say and all of the thoughts that you have are driven by this inward thing you're called your heart. He's not talking about a muscle in your chest that pumps blood, okay? That is not what Jesus has in mind. In the Jewish thought, the heart was the center of one's being, and it included both the mind and the emotions and the motives and the thoughts. It did include the mind, and it did include our feelings, that was the idea. That's why when Jesus says in um, you, you know, Deuteronomy 6, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then in, in Matthew 22 in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to a Greek audience. And he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and all your what? All your mind. He adds mind in there. Why? Because in the Jewish way of thinking about the heart, it included the mind. They would have known that. The Gentiles didn't understand that it also included our minds. So when we think about our hearts, we are thinking about what we're thinking, what our motives are, what our attitudes are, and it drives our behavior. Everything is driven by our hearts. The things that we do and the things that we think, the things that we say, all driven by our hearts inwardly. And what Jesus is teaching is that that is corrupted. And as long as that is corrupted, 
There's no amount of cleanliness that you can pass through on the outside to actually fix that issue. Now look at verse 20 with me, if you will. Look at what Jesus says. And I'll just give further um, justification for what I was saying about the heart. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Now just pause with me there. There are six things listed. Did you guys notice those are all actions? Those are all actions. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetous. Now look at the next seven things that he lists. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These are, these are attitudes. These are thoughts. So what Jesus covers here is he's saying everything that you do, everything that your hand does, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything that you think in your mind and everything that you intend in your, in your gut, all of that is part of your heart. And what Jesus is saying is that is what is broken to the core. That's the engine that doesn't have any oil that is frozen up. It's totally shot. And what Christ says is that only I can diagnose that. Only I can fix that. And there's no food that you can eat on the outside. There's not as much synthetic oil that you can put in there to actually ramify that problem, remedy that problem. Jesus takes issue with our hearts and he says, the foods that you eat, that matters nothing. The real problem, you need a new heart. You need a new engine. And it's not going anywhere until you get that new heart. You need the cleansing from the inside out, not the outside in. So here's some things that we can take away from it. You know, as we think about how we apply this now, beware of outside-in approaches. Beware of that. Brothers and sisters, Christians, beware of outside-in approaches. You see, the, the Pharisees, they thought that they could solve the problem by the outside-in, eating certain foods, washing their hands enough, being circumcised, etc. But mankind looks, at, looks to lots of outside approaches in our day, and there's nothing new under the sun in that way. Now, I heard this story about, um, I think there's a book that's featured about the, around this premise. A man who was charged of a crime, and he was put into prison, he was tried, all of these things came with it. And he walked around his life with a sense of guilt. He didn't know, and nobody ever told him what the crime was. He was just convicted of a crime, you've done a crime, you're being convicted of it, you're being charged, you're being sentenced, but nobody ever told him what the crime actually was. And all through his life, he went through, he faced all the trials, he did all the things, he served all the time, he suffered all the consequences of, of, of uh, breaking a law, but he never actually knew exactly what he did or what law he broke. So he had a sense of guilt about him, but <laughs> never, even to his dying day, never actually found out what he did. And if you think about it, that is maybe a good illustration, perhaps, of our world without the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have a lot of outside-in, um, uh, perhaps, uh, suggestions about what our problems really are, but there's nothing actually authoritatively that says, you are the problem. Only Jesus actually will say that. And when we think about culture, we have a lot, I mean, really, if you think about it, without Christ, do you realize that that, 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 that parable that I told you, that story about a person who was convicted of a crime, that summarizes a person's life without Christ. They may be guilty. They may have a guilty conscience, but they don't know what or why. They're not exactly sure what they have done or what the problem really is. 
And when we think about all of the different things that mankind looks to, it doesn't actually provide them the solution. We can look to, okay, so I'll outline three th different things, uh, three outside-in um, suggestions or three different things that people might look to and turn to to, to answer these, the problem, the, the, the true problems that mankind faces. Number one would be perhaps religion. And by religion, what I mean is not Christianity. Christianity is a religion. So I have to be careful about how we talk about religion. But to the extent that we do religious things, I go to church, I've done good things, I helped people across the street when they needed, um, I pray every once in a while, um, I, every once in a while I might read the Bible, so on and so forth. These are things that, unless they actually take you to the core of your being and to the core of talking about your sinful heart and Christ crucified, religion is an empty outside-in thing that doesn't actually get to the core of what you're doing. It's like eating food that is clean. I've done good things. I do good things. Therefore, it should right, make me clean. But a person in this situation, if they're trusting in religion, if that's what, really what they're trusting in outside of Christ, if they're not trusting in Christ, just trusting in religious kind of platitudes, they might never actually get their guilt problem solved because nothing is really diagnosing what the real problem is. Perhaps politics is another one. This is huge in our day, and we can, we can appreciate this. And when we think about politics, it's certainly an outside-in approach to fixing humanity. Politics offers the hope of utopia, does it not? When we think about political agendas, especially in our day, we can understand this. We think about political agendas. They are driven, really, by this idea of utopia. We can fix mankind if we just have the right policies, if we just follow the science enough, if we just have the right people in office. But look at what politics has really given us, and look at what politics ultimately can give us is perhaps division about warring over what is right and what is wrong. When we think about the wars that we have faced, can politics, can science really solve our problems? Does science really lead us to your heart is sinful and Christ on the cross is your solution? Does science, will science ever lead us to that? So yes, Christians should be involved in politics. I agree with that. But politics is really an empty hope for salvation. And we shouldn't confuse it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We really should not. And when we think about people in our culture putting all of their eggs in the basket of politics, they are deceived. Brothers and sisters, our culture is deceived insofar as they think that the right politicians and the right policies will usher in utopia. It will not. It will not. And number three, perhaps, and outside in is idols, our culture. We look at pop stars and we try to emulate their lives as if they have everything down and everything going for them. We look at pictures of them on magazines and on TV, and they look so perfect. It seems like they have their lives together. But do you know what it actually amounts to? It amounts to despair, to depression and disillusionment, perhaps. For anyone who really tries to follow that because they can't reach it. And the reality is the people, the pop stars themselves, they can't even attain to it. It's an unattainable standard that leaves, I think, culture and society feeling empty and void. 
So really, when we think about this, and yet there's this desire. There's this desire, isn't there, to identify with our pop cultures, with our pop idols. Because if we can just attain to that, if we can just kind of emulate them in a little bit, we might have the kind of maybe sense of arriving as they have. Oh, an overcoming of all of my problems and such. So these are outside-in approaches that leave us empty, that leave us void. And really, only the gospel is an inside-out ministry. Only the gospel truly is, is leveling you, at you the right diagnosis of what you really need to hear. What do you really need to hear? This might hurt your self-esteem, but you are a sinner. And the evil comes from within you. The evil in this world starts right here in this heart. And the solution of it is Christ, a bloody Savior, one who is crucified, one who is nailed to a cross, one who has gone outside the camp for us. You see, Jesus demonstrates authority when he says, you are the problem. And he actually says, you're worse than you think. But he demonstrates authority as well when he says, I'm the solution. Christ says, you're the problem, I'm the solution. Everyone must humble themselves under that diagnosis that Jesus is the solution. And then, as I said before, Jesus went outside the gate. And when you think about cleanliness, when we think about holiness, when we think about our pursuit of holiness, Christians ought to be a people that pursue holiness, but not fake outside-in holiness, but a true holiness, because Christ is the one who took our uncleanness when he went outside the gate. You know, this is a picture going outside the gate. That's where all the defilement, that's where all the trash was kept. To be outside the gate was to be dirty, to be defiled. Christ was defiled so we could be clean. Christ is the one who takes our impurity. He takes the ugliness of us upon himself, and he transfers the beauty of his holy character upon us. This is substitutionary atonement, as the Bible teaches us. Christ takes our sin and he puts his righteousness upon us. We have no righteousness of our own. We have the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the one who is dirty so we could be clean. And clean not in a superficial way, but clean from the inside out, from the depths of our being. Christ is the master mechanic who takes that engine apart and cleans every single part, puts it back together. You have a new engine. It's, it's humming, humming like a bird, singing like a song. He puts a new heart within us because he took our dirt upon himself and he gives us his cleanliness. So Christians ought to be, we ought to be a people that cares about holiness. We are the church and we are far more concerned about our inside than our outside. You know, it is possible to, to look really good on the outside. And all of us, to some extent, face that temptation, don't we? All of us are pretty good at looking pretty good on the outside, like we have it all together. And then the reality is we really don't. And as Christians, we should be leading the way in just the reality. You know what? I'm a mess internally. I care much more about my insides than my outsides. And that's true for us, and that ought to be true, that we are much more devoted to what is going on in my heart. What are my thoughts? What are my intentions? Let me cleanse the dirt there because that is what drives everything that comes out. That is what drives my hands. That is what drives my mouth. That is what really it should be my concern, is what is going on on the inside of me. Christians should lead the way in that. Christians should be marked by that. All of our ministries, all of our discipleship, all of our preaching, we should address the heart and apply the gospel to the core of our beings. And when we think about our children, you know, it's not just okay 
to make sure that our kids are doing the right things and crossing off all, their, all the things that they have on their checklist. As parents, good parents and good discipling of our children includes helping them understand. Do you understand what motivates you? Do you understand that you did that because you have evil and wickedness and sin in your heart? Do you realize that you're motivated by a desire for you and only you and you don't care about anybody else? Will we say that to our children? Will we say that to one another? When we think about parenting, when we think about all discipleship, we care about our hearts. And really, if you think about it, Christianity is a total, I mean, we're totally exposed to one another. <laughs> we are. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I don't think we should, we should bear everything to everyone. Don't get me wrong about that. But I do think that to pursue holiness, we must, we must allow people to pry into the depths of our being. We have to pry into the depths of others. Because that is where, that is where life really happens, is down in here in the depths. So may we not be a church that, you know what, we have everything looking good on the outside, but inside there's all kinds of hypocrisy, there's all kinds of gunk going on inside. Christians have a humble confidence in God's word. And we could say we should prioritize God's word above methodology. When we think about tradition, you know, the Pharisees had their traditions and Jesus rebuked them. And he said, you're under the condemnation. There's many things we could perhaps put in that category for ourselves. And let me suggest this one, methodology. Is that our version of our traditions? When we think about church, I'm just in ministry circles, so I, maybe this is just front and center in my own thinking. But has the church, you know, have you guys ever seen this with other pastors, perhaps, or other churches? They have essentially given way to methodology, not so much the word of God. They have prioritized what works, what grows a church, what looks good, what do people like. They've prioritized that above preaching the word of God and staying true to God's word. And perhaps we could, re we, we could relate to that. And perhaps maybe we think about churches and different ministries and different leaders, perhaps that, oh yeah, I can think of that person and that person and that person. But you know what? We should... We should put our own hearts under our own microscope? Where is our temptation to figure out what works? Where, is our, where are we following methodology more than we're following the living truth of God's word? We could ask that. And we could always make sure that, we, you know what, we don't deviate from the word of God, that we will always surrender to God's word, that we will trust in God's word, and that we will remind ourselves often and frequently that it is a slippery slope, and it is possible to think you're doing great things in ministry and following God and caring about God, really rejecting him, actually. That's a possibility. That's a category that Jesus introduces to us in Mark 7. The Pharisees really were committed to God. So zealous, in fact, they were rejecting God. And they were under his condemnation. So that was a, that's, a, that's a warning, I think, to his church. So we, may we not find our own traditions that we put ourselves under, that we deviate from the word of God. And the, the word of God then becomes kind of a distant thing that we assume, oh, I know that. I've been to school. I've studied the word all my life. I understand those things. You know, it's possible that we could drift away from it. And we could cling to other things that aren't God's word. And by so doing, we're essentially accomplishing our wills and not, the God, not, not God's will. So may we think about those things. May we think about um, everything that we do should be informed and conformed to the wisdom that comes from God's word. And if this is true, it will safeguard us against 
God's condemnation, and we will be assured that we will bear fruit in producing God's will for His glory and for our joy. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. I pray, God, that you would help us, help us to apply it rightly. Help us, Lord God, to think through it biblically. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us all to examine our hearts, the depths of our being. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given us the words of truth. If we do not speak, Lord, um, how will anybody really know where their guilt comes from and what their solution really actually is? So you have entrusted your people, your church, Lord God, with the gospel message. The wisdom of the world will continue to grow darker and darker because it does not lead to God. Only we have the words of life. And we don't say that arrogantly, Lord. We say that humbly. We humbly accept our call, Lord God, to be light and salt in this earth. And we pray that you would give us many ears to speak to, Father, about the truth of your word, about the truth of the gospel. May we greatly enjoy ministering your truth to each other and to the world around us. And I pray that you would be greatly glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.